Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hey, welcome to the very latest episode of the Andy J Podcast. I hope you're having a really special week. We have quite the conversation lined up for you today with a remarkable man. Dr. Rongan Chatterjee is my special guest, and he's going to be talking about the new science of mental well-being because he has written and brought out a best-selling book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. Now, coming up in this really decent length conversation, we're nearly 90 minutes in this one. Rongan is going to be giving you tools, tips, advice and suggestions on how to have a clear and happy mind. And he'll be calling on influences and experiences from his own life to be able to share how he's done this. I must say it was an incredible conversation that we had just last week and he and I were doing it on Zoom so we were watching each other. And it was one of these conversations where I had pages and pages and pages of notes, not just because obviously he's written this incredible book that is a game changer for people's mental health, but also because I wanted to get to know him a little bit because I've heard him on a few podcasts and other shows now talking about his book. He's done sort of, you know, half hours here, hours there and so on. And they've been riveting and fascinating. And of course, he has his own staggeringly successful podcast, Feel Better, Live More. I think something like six million people listen to that every single month. Top of the uh, health charts in, in all the sort of podcast spaces. But I was very keen to get to know Rongan as well. I've sort of been aware of his work as a TV doctor and the various other books that he's written and so on. So I know that there's a really interesting guy that perhaps hasn't shared a huge amount of his own personal story to this point. So I was hoping that we could explore some of that with him. And he delivered. I think this is a really interesting conversation. If this is your first time listening to the Andy J podcast, welcome. Thank you very much for your company today. You've chosen a good one. We have so many incredible conversations in our back catalogue. We're well over, well, as you can see, we're well over 100 episodes in now. And some of the chats we've had are just amazing. If mental health and well-being are your jam, because that might be one of the reasons why you've come to this episode, then I can also direct you to episodes with the likes of Joe Wicks. Uh, we put out a, a mental health special uh, over Christmas just recently where we talked to people like James Arthur, the musician, and uh, Katie Mellower, Celia Imray. All of these people have talked about incredible journeys and adventures they've been on and, and come through. And of course, Matt Haig is a classic example and Terry White, the sensational writer. So we have lots and lots of amazing names, and that's just people I'm thinking of off the top of my head. If you have a little scroll through our previous episodes, I hope and think you'll find lots and lots more to delight, entertain, and perhaps inspire you. Thank you for this. I'm going to hand over now to the fascinating Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. 
My guest today has dedicated his life to the health and happiness of others. In his primary career as a doctor, but then with the power of television and indeed fame, he's reached millions with his TV shows, podcasts and books. The latest, Happy Mind, Happy Life, is literally a guide to being happy. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome, and I'm always scared about talking to doctors and priests, but nonetheless, Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. How are you doing, Rongan? Are you well? Are you happy? I am. I'm, I'm very happy and content these days. That is that is the truth. Um, it's a real delight to be chatting with you, Andy, uh, on Talk Radio. Really, really appreciate it. So yeah, but, but life's good these days. Really good. This is lovely to hear. Now, of course, we're going to be delving into the book. I have read it. In fact, I have almost used it like a guide myself over the last few weeks that I've had it with me. It's obviously now out to the public. I got I was lucky enough to get sent one of these early ones. So I've had a chance to live with it for a little while. So, of course, we're going to be discussing this in depth, if that's comfortable with you. But I'm also mindful that you have done the circuit recently. You know, you've been on the CEO and the high performance shows and all the rest of it. So lots and lots of people have heard the background to this book. So I was hoping that whilst we will discuss the book, we could also kind of dive into you a little bit as well, because you've had a fascinating life from your upbringing through to your success and your fame and all the various different things that have happened to you. I'd love to explore, well, you as much as the book, if that's if that's okay. Yeah, you ask away. I mean, I think that's very much actually in keeping with this book, because this is this is the book when you look at all five of mine, where I've been the most raw and open, and I guess honest. And when I say honest, it doesn't mean that my previous four books were dishonest. What I mean is that we've all got parts of ourselves within ourselves that we hide away, that we almost lock up and we don't present to the outside world. And I found that by you know, understanding those parts that you might have previously felt ashamed of or, you know, you don't want to share with people by actually being open and honest and actually writing about my perceived insecurities and struggles in life in my new book, it seems to have really struck a chord with people. Like it connects you to people in a way that just giving expert advice doesn't because I think when we realize that the author or the person we're we're talking to has been through the same struggles or similar struggles, I think it just makes us feel better that actually we're all imperfect humans doing the best that we can. And so that was a big moment for me, a really big step to actually share these parts. Um and I think the book's all the better because of it. So ask away. Well, this is really interesting to hear you say this, because I know in your podcast as well, which is staggeringly successful, by the way, it's at least six million people a month listen to it. And you probably have had a similar experience to what I've learned chatting to celebrities during lockdown and getting through the pandemic, is that rather like what you were saying with your book, people seem much more willing and keen to share now to actually say look these are my my demons these are the shadows in my past and I actually I want to get them out there I want to put it out there and just work through it move on with it I don't know if you found that as well but I certainly found that so many more people that had perhaps previously maybe trotted out a few famous anecdotes people know oh you got so-and-so on the show so they're going to make us laugh at this point then we'll hear that funny story about that and then we'll hear that but we won't know much about them but actually last couple of years that's flipped on its head and people just want to speak. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. And if you think about the last two years, it's really forced a lot of us to confront ourselves. 
right? The usual um, outlets that we might have had to relax or unwind or de-stress for many months, depending on, of course, where you live in the world, you know, what, 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 what the restrictions are or were in your area. Of course, it's going to be different. But the truth is, for many of us, we had to, you know, sit with ourselves and actually kind of sit with anxieties and stresses, not be able to go out to the bar with your buddies to unwind or whatever. And and actually, I thought early on in that period, I once spoke to Gabor Mate about this on my podcast. And I said to him, I'm not entirely sure that this has brought up anything new for anyone the last two years. But what I think it's done is stress test our systems. And so what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, that you were a runner or I was a runner. And or let's say I'm not a runner, but I start running and I can run 1K, 2K, 3K, no problem. I don't feel anything. But as soon as I go to 4K, I, I start to feel my hammy. And that's why I stop. And then, you know, the next week I'll go for a 2K run, no problem. But when I go for 4K, I feel the hammy again. So did the running cause the hamstring problem? Or was it that you already had it there? You already had the imbalance in how you were moving, but your movement was never stressing your body to the point where that hamstring problem started to show itself. And I really feel the same thing happened to many of us in 2020 and 2021, where there was stuff going on. We had these anxieties, these fears, maybe the sense of trying to control everything around us. But then stuff happens where, you know, you can't do things that you want to do. So actually your system and your inner world is starting to be stress tested in a way that it never has been before. So you think that these things are brand new that are coming up, but I actually don't think they were for most of us. I think they were existing stuff that was sitting inside us. But the such is the state of fast-paced, um, you know, 21st century living, that we never need to be with ourselves. We can always distract ourselves with Instagram, with Twitter, with Netflix box sets, with, um, you know, shopping on Amazon or, or whatever. You know, we don't need to sit with those emotions, but this time we actually had to. So does that in some way mean that people now feel better able to share? They have things that they want to share with people, things that they struggle with. I don't know for sure, but I certainly think it's a huge part of it. Yes, that's, and I guess it's just that time. We've had that time to process it, to think about it, because a lot of people's lives were changed immeasurably. You know, they couldn't work in the way they were used to and so on. But, but I think perhaps the other big thing, and again, you're the expert here. I have no idea. I just chat to people and ask silly questions. But I think perhaps the big thing is that the, for a short time, we were all equal. The great leveller happened. Everybody was indoors. Everybody had to stay at home, wash their hands, say happy birthday twice, and so on and so forth. We were all in exactly the same position, regardless of whether we had balconies and gardens and so on. We all had the same instruction and had to behave. And status and celebrity and income and so on was irrelevant for a short period of time. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I think it's important to say at this point that when people did have to stay at home, of course, your experience of that is going to be different depending on what job you have. Maybe you've got a job that very easily can go online. Great. You can sit at home. Let's say you're lucky enough to have a garden. Sure. Actually, for some people, it was like, okay, cool. This is, yeah, it's difficult, but actually it's not too bad. Other people, of course, it wasn't like that. You know, let's say you have a studio apartment and you have your partner and two kids, that experience is going to be 
very, very different. You know, so it's the same set of restrictions, but how we experience that, of course, is going to be different. But having said that, I think pretty much for everyone, we've been forced to confront a kind of reality. And many of us, myself included, have actually learned some very important lessons about what life is really about. Like I remember in that first lockdown, and you know, I am lucky because my job could transfer to being online, right? So I I didn't have a worry about my job and my income Mm. in a way that many people might have done at that time. I have a garden where my kids can play and I can sit outside if the sun's shining, right? So I'm aware of the... I don't even want to use the word privilege because I think we overuse and we sort of make that almost a derogatory word these days or we can we can do. You know, I'm very grateful for what I have. Let's put it like that. I don't feel bad about it, but I'm very grateful for it. So there's, there's a subtle difference there. But I realise that, oh, if I go for a walk with my wife and my two kids and we've left our phones at home and we're out for two hours... I I genuinely couldn't be happier. Mm. Like in that moment, for those two hours, like I'm king of the world. Yeah. Like everything felt great. And I think many of us have had little micro experiences like that where we go, oh, well, you know, maybe it is the simple things that actually bring us that joy and that happiness and that contentment. Maybe it isn't. Or the kind of paraphernalia and buying that phone or you know, renting a nice car when you're on holiday, whatever that story might be for someone. I think all of us on some level have had that realization, which is why I think, you know, that this new book is is striking such a chord with so many thousands of people around the country is because I think it's hitting on something that a lot of people have started to question and realize. I, I, I didn't write this book, Andy, in response to what was going on, this idea has been brewing for many years. Frankly, this idea, I think, has been brewing my entire life. It's there, There's some real autobiographical moments in the book. It, it's been my entire life, but I just happen to think that it seems even more poignant and relevant for people, given the state of the world at the moment. Yes, absolutely. And obviously the backdrop of, of the bigger world, we can all look to our own little bubbles and, and what pandemic meant to us and so on but the bigger world we all are aware of the horrors that are happening on other seas and so on we know what's going on and and I think it's actually those people that did find their calm calm find their peace find their guilt-free moments and so on during lockdown etc have maybe struggled to get back to that recently and so like you say with the book coming out now it's very timely because it's close enough for everyone to remember. You were, you were mentioning those golden moments that we had and we hark back to. It's close enough to remember, but everyone's kind of got this newfound layer of stress again. You know, there's tension in the air. We're aware of it, not just because of what we're seeing on the news, but in general, there is a fizz of tension around. I'm feeling it. I'm sure lots of people are. So for people, because you're such a trusted source, it's not just because you're a doctor and because we're familiar with you on the television, but we know that it comes from a place of goodness. So for people to see that you're bringing out a book here, which is ultimately designed for that core happiness, which I'm sure we'll get into. That's, there'll be people that see this and they'll just be relieved. They'll see the title of the book, they'll read some reviews and so on, and they'll be like, oh, thank goodness, because I can get back to where I've always wanted to be. Those moments Mm. of happiness that I had, I can get that again because I know it's going to contain easy tools and it's not going to test me 
because you never, you never, I, you know, I'm very aware of what you've done in your career and you never sort of put people out on a limb. You never say, okay, well, you will achieve certain things provided and here is a very difficult carrot for you to eat. You know, you always mm. say, here's some simple things. Let's do some breathing or let's pick up the phone and have a quick conversation or go and play a game of pool or whatever it might be. These aren't challenging, difficult things. Have a five minute walk and so on. Yeah. So people are going to yeah. know that, that, that your book is full of can do's rather than this is going to be too hard yeah that, that's what you know i especially when writing about a topic like happiness which i absolutely want to get into with you and define what i mean by that because i think that's a term that you can say it to 10 different people and they'll come up with 10 different interpretations of what that term means to them but what i've realized throughout my career but especially whilst researching this book is that happiness is a skill it's a skill that we can practice, we can cultivate, we can develop, we can get better at that skill once we know what to practice. But the problem is, is that we're not taught what to practice. I wasn't taught it as a child. I wasn't taught it at school. I wasn't taught it by my parents. I certainly was not taught it by society. In fact, I would argue that for most of us, society gives us the wrong ideas about happiness and sends us down the wrong track to confusing success with happiness they can overlap but they're usually for most people separate things and so I didn't want to just have this kind of you know nice idea of a happy life it's like well how can people do that how can busy people who are struggling to find time to do even the simplest of things for their family or themselves how can they put these things into practice so for me it's always about what's practical and every single recommendation I make in this book, A, it's optional. I never tell people what to do. These are just suggestions. I invite people to consider this might be an option that you may want to think about bringing into your life. If you don't, hey, I'm okay with that. Right? It's your life. You can do what you want. I'm just trying to share what's helped me, what's helped my patients. And I feel very proud that everything I've asked people to consider doing in the book is free of charge. Like literally nothing I've asked people to do costs a single penny to do. And that's important to me because I want to make health and happiness as accessible to as many people as possible. And I know because I've had the feedback from patients, I've had the feedback from thousands of people already since the book's come out, that actually these tools are making a real difference. Like whether you are somebody who you know, feels really stressed at the moment and close to burnout... Or whether you're someone who thinks, yeah, life's okay. It's not bad, but is this all there is? Could I be getting something more out of my life? I I, I'm, I was going to say 100%. I'm 99.9% stroke 100% sure that the tools in this book will help you feel happier no matter what your starting point. Because it is actually quite a simple skill. We just need to know what to practice. And it's this idea that I did talk about in the book, Andy, this idea that we kind of know if we lift weights every day, we're going to get stronger muscles. Like if you do bicep curls every day in your kitchen, you're going to get bigger and stronger biceps. We don't really need to convince anyone of that. They, we kind of intuitively understand that. We've been given that message at school, by the media, by TV shows, right? So we get that. When it comes to happiness and mental well-being, we think it's something different. And I, I want to show people it's the same idea. This core happiness stool that I've created for the book is very, very practical. There are three legs of that stool. You can work and strengthen each one of those three legs. And as you do that, that core happiness stool is going to be more stable and you're going to be more resilient and you're going to feel happier. So 
the side effect of what I'm asking you to do is happiness. You're not focusing on happiness in and of itself. You're focusing on the things that lead to happiness. And I hope and I think that's incredibly empowering and freeing for people. It is. I mean, it is incredible. And it's obviously, it's the ultimate way of doing good is helping people to be happy. But that in itself, that comes with a, a little bit of pressure, doesn't it? I mean, you, you're putting yourself out there. You're, you're sort of saying to people, look, these, these are tools that work for me and I think they'll work for you. And because you're a doctor and because you have our trust and, and your amazing history with everything you've done in the public eye, people are going to come to you and believe that this is going to work. And, and that's a lot of it. If you believe things will work, then they, they mm. tend to. But that does, it does put some pressure on you, doesn't it? I mean, I, just, just to look at it from the other side for a second, it's amazing what you're doing, but, but also you are. You're putting a big weight on your shoulders. You're almost becoming Dr. Happy. You know what I mean? I don't feel it. Okay. I don't feel it, Andy. And, and that's, I think, one of the reasons I feel so good these days. For much of my life, if not all of my life until recently, I have needed external validation to feel good in who I was, right? You asked about personal stories. Well, let me tell you about my my childhood and how that has played into that. My parents were immigrants to the UK in the 1960s and the 1970s. So in the 1960s, the National Health Service has a shortage of doctors. So they recruit actually go and recruit doctors from countries like India. My dad was one of those doctors. So dad comes to the UK with nothing. um, And, you know, the, the, the carrot there is, you know, a better life for him, his family and his family back home. Right. So dad works really, really hard. He faces discrimination. There's all kinds of problems of which dad never, ever complained about until literally he was on his deathbed and he shared this stuff with me. But he faced you know, it was a real struggle. And I, you know, I, I I'm sort of shared dad's story in chapter one of the book. And dad got this idea of success and happiness wrong. Like I think most of us do. We think it's the same thing. Dad chased success and he got it, but it killed him. Like he worked so hard, he killed himself working. Like I know that with 100% certainty at the age of 59, Dad gets struck down with an autoimmune disease called lupus. His kidneys fail. He's on dialysis for 15 years. I moved back from being in Edinburgh. You know, my brother, myself, my mum were carers of dad for almost 15 years. It affected our whole adult life, you know. Uh, and dad obviously was was really suffering. But dad would work so hard. He was a consultant at Manchester Royal Infirmary, right? He would work in the day. He'd come back by 6 p.m., 5.30, p.m. I can still remember it. He'd go into the kitchen. Mum would have dinner ready for him. He'd have dinner. Then he'd walk upstairs to the bathroom. He'd shave. And then a car would pick him up at 7 p.m. So dad would go in the car. He'd be out all night doing GP house calls. He'd arrive back at 7 a.m., come back, have breakfast that mum's made for him, go upstairs, shave, and then drive, you know, 30 minutes into central Manchester to do his job as a consultant in the day. Dad did that for 30 years. So he only slept three nights a week for 30 years, so four nights he was up, right? Now, I didn't know it back then, but I know what chronic sleep deprivation, chronic stress does to your risk of ill health and autoimmune disease, right? So dad kills himself working. I think many of us are doing the same thing. We are literally killing ourselves, trying to get to this point where actually, oh, we've got enough money for this. We've got, you know, stability here. We've got that. And we get to the point where we've got all that, 
and we still don't feel happy or we've killed ourselves, we've affected our health so much in the process of trying to get that external validation that doesn't really lead to, uh, to, to that deep level of happiness. Now, I just want to be really clear here, Randy. I'm not saying money is unimportant. I understand that if you don't have enough money to put a roof over your head, to buy food, to have those kind of basic needs in life, yes, the research says that more money does make you happier up to a point. But once your basic needs are met, food, shelter, safety, house, right? Actually, most of the research is suggesting that more money does not make you happier. And so the way I think about it is that money doesn't bring happiness in and of itself. I think what money does is removes common sources of unhappiness. Right. right? So money is important up to a point. I do acknowledge that. But why has dad's story had such an impact on me? Well, here's the thing. This is very common in immigrant families, Andy, uh, certainly in Indian families in, in, in the UK that I that I know, and I'm, I'm, of course, part of one of those families growing up. There's a huge priority put on academic success. Okay. Right? That's very, very important. So I would come home from school, and if I had 19 out of 20 in an exam or in a test... My parents would say, well, why didn't you get 20? If I came second in the class, it was like, well, who came top? Why didn't you come top? Gosh. If I got 99%, it was like, why not 100%? Now, perspective, as you know, as you shared just before we, 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 we started recording, you know, chapter five is all about how we can take a different perspective on uh, any, anything in life to create that sense of happiness and control. Perspective is really interesting because... I spoke to mum as I was writing this book. I said, hey, mum, can I ask you, why did you and dad do that to me when I was a child? Why did you say all those things if I didn't get full marks or wasn't top? And my mum said to me, we did it because we know how capable you are. We wanted you to be the best that you could be. We did not do the same for your brother. He has different skills to you, right? So what's really interesting is mum and dad did this from a place of love right? They're trying to help me. They don't want me to go through the same problems that they had in in their head. If I can get straight A's and go and be a doctor or a lawyer and get a good job, I'll have no problems in life. I understand their mindset. Here's the problem. Little Rongan sitting on the other side of that table takes on the belief at a young age that I'm not good enough unless I get full marks. I'm not worthy. I'm not loved unless I'm the best. Now, mom and dad didn't mean to give me that. Like, I'm, I'm not blaming them. They loved me. They were doing the best that they could for me. But I can see, particularly in the last five years, honey, I can see this. This has led to this, you know, huge inner drive that on the outside looks great. You know, I've got a good job. You know, by society's definition of success, Andy, I've got it. Yes, you have. Right? I've got yeah. a good job. Yeah. I've written, well, now five best-selling books right? My, I've, got, I've got the number one health podcast in Europe, right? I've got a good job. I'm happily married. From the outside, everything looks great. But I can tell you, until recently, I didn't feel that content in who I was. You know, it's always what's next. You know, what more can you do? You know, you're always chasing that next thing. You don't feel settled. You don't feel grounded. And as I've understood where that's come from, and I've taken steps to unpick it because you can change this stuff. That's a beautiful thing. You can change all of this. These things are not fixed. That's why when at the start of this interview, you asked me, how do I feel? So I feel really good. Like I really feel good. You said, 
oh, there's a pressure on you of being Dr. Happy. No, I don't feel the pressure, mate. And the way I used to, if this book had come out three years ago, I would have felt a pressure. I would have been feeling, well, I hope people like it, right? Um, are they going to say, I hope they say nice things because I've put my heart and soul into this book and, you know, I hope it connects with them. I don't feel that anymore. It's not that I don't care. I deeply care. But I have learned to separate now the success of anything I do in life and who I am. Like I know that my children and my wife, they do not care less <laughs> if daddy sells one book or 100,000 books. They don't care. Yeah, They still love me, right? And that's a, that, that just sounds so trivial, but it's one of the most important learnings I've had in my life, right? It doesn't matter. Like it, it's not who I am. So the reason I don't feel the pressure is because pressure for many of us is self-created and how we tell ourselves a story about things. Like I don't, I know the book will be helpful for people. I know it because I've getting the feedback. I've used it myself. I've seen it with patients. I, I don't need, I, I don't put that pressure on myself. Like I know that if people pick it up and give it a chance, it will help them. And if they decide not to, I'm okay with that as well. You know, one of one of the big things for me in my own life, Andy, in terms of my own happiness, is that I've let go of the need to be right anymore. Like that's that's been a big thing for me. You know, when you're trying to compete and get the top grades and do all this, you know, you want to be right. You want to know what's truth. I've realized that always trying to decide if you're right or wrong, and people can think about this in their own relationships with their partner or their children or their friends. It's just not that a calm, contented place to be. I, these days, I'm a learner, right? I'm always looking just to learn. Every day is a school day. What can I learn today? I approach each day with curiosity. So if something that I've said or believed, you know, later turns out to have been incorrect or maybe not the whole perspective, I'm like, great, awesome. I've learned something here. I'm not tied to it. I'm not tied to it. It's like, oh no, I can't change that because that's who I was. Is this making sense? I know this is quite is. deep. No, but no, this is, is, is it making this is, sense. This is wonderful because also as as a father, you know, I try and sometimes I try and look at the easiest possible perspective, which is for me, I try and look at it through I have three boys. I try and look at it through their eyes. And so what I've been trying to do, for example, is if we're playing a game of cards with two of the boys, before it gets to the point where someone's clearly going to win, I try and say to both the boys, right now we are having fun. In this moment, this mm. is great fun. So whoever wins this, remember that right now during this game, you are enjoying yourself. You're enjoying it. And if you win or you don't win the actual card game, just remember that you've enjoyed the process of playing. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And for me, do you know what's so wonderful about that is that you're bringing an awareness to the experience that they're having. And a lot of the time in society, we don't do that. It's about the outcome, right? It's what happens at the end, who won, who lost, right? It's about um, the destination, not the journey. And we know that when we focus on outcome and journey, generally speaking, we kind of miss life, right? Life is happening yeah. on the way to that outcome or that journey, right? If, if that's what you're focused on, then you've got a big problem. Look, I, I spoke to um, Johnny Wilkinson last week in the studio. And we're putting it on the podcast in just a couple of days. Amazingly powerful conversation. 
I'm sure most people listening know who Johnny is, but if they don't, Johnny was England's uh, Rugby World Cup player um, in scored, 2003. He scored the winning kick. Yeah. Winning kick in the final minutes of the game. You yeah. fairy tale setting, right? Whilst and also being the golden boy, incidentally, you know, proper pin up. Yeah. Yeah. So literally you would think, God, the guy has everything. Unfortunately, in that moment, he's feeling empty and worthless inside. Like oh. he, he shares how the minutes the ball left his foot, even before it's gone through, things are starting to go down. He wakes up the next day feeling nothing, empty, lonely, worthless, right? He wrote down on a piece of paper, I believe, when he was a kid, his dreams, you know, I want to play for England, I want to win the World Cup. Well, he had a big problem because at the age of 24, he suddenly got his life dreams. So what's next, right? He was so focused on that, relating to what you're talking about in a game with your your kids. You miss the presence. You miss actually the experience of living. I very much resonate with Johnny on a different level. I, I certainly did not win the World Cup and did not did not score a winning try. But in my life, in, in, and I think many people will, will recognize elements of them. They're so driven. And I would ask people, this is a big question to ask yourself, where does that drive come from? Does that drive come from a place of not feeling enough? Like, oh, when I achieve that, I'm going to show them. I'm, you know, they didn't believe in me. I'm going to show them that I could do it. Yeah. Hey, fine. But just realize if that's where your drive comes from, you'll probably get your dreams. You'll probably reach your goals. But you won't feel complete inside even when you've got them. I know because I've spoken to countless people on my podcast who tell you the same story over and over again. I've experienced it myself. That's not happiness right? It can be, it can form part of it. Sure. I'm not saying we should just sit at home and never do anything and never try and put anything out there in the world. No, I'm not saying that at all. But where does that motivation desire come from? If it's from a place of lack, when you get there, you're still going to have a problem. But if it's from a place of love, that's kind of real ambition where it's like, no, I'm not doing it to prove anyone wrong or show anyone. I'm doing it because this is what nourishes me. This is what I'm here to do on planet earth. You know, the motivation behind that um, behind that goal is what's important. The goal can be the same, but what's the intention behind it? So I'm still, you know, going back to what you asked me about this book and pressure. So me not feeling pressure doesn't mean I don't care. Yeah. Right. I want this book to be successful. Right. Why? Because I honestly believe it's going to help people lead happier and healthier lives. It's going to improve the quality of their relationships. It's going to help them reduce anxiety, depression, stress. They're going to be more compassionate to the world around them, to themselves. Yeah, so I want that. But the difference now is that that success is not a reflection of who I am. And that's the difference. In the past, it was. And that's a very fragile place to be because you go on these highs and lows in life. When things are going well, the people are saying nice things, you feel wonderful. Get a couple of negative comments, you go, you go on a roller coaster down to the opposite end where you feel nothing and worthless. And then you engage in in what I call in the book junk happiness habits. Yeah. We've yeah. all got our junk happiness habit of choice, usually several. And these are the things that we go to to distract. And we there's nothing necessarily wrong with them. What are junk happiness habits? They usually it could be sugar, alcohol, three hours on Instagram, online shopping you know, online pornography these days, you know, it can be anything. 
And, you know, for a lot of them, then there's not necessarily a problem engaging them now and again for a lot of them. The problem is this when we engage in them too often or when we think they're feeding that kind of true deep level of happiness when they're not. Yes. Yes, this is interesting. And and actually, I, I want to come back to some things you were saying about a little wrong in a moment, if that's all right. But but just talking about this roller coaster that, that you mentioned of highs and lows and so on and the junk happiness side of things and your mindset, as you say, two, three years now, it's it's been a completely different place. Does this mean that you're happy as we can, as we sort of feel happiness inside? Does this mean you're, you're on a sort of consistent plane? You never get too excited. You don't get too low. You're just sort of consistently, I don't know if content is the right word, but consistently yeah. in, a, in a good place, shall we say? It's, yeah, it's a great question. It's actually something that I've not got back to this guy yet. And uh, I get too many DMs to get back to everyone. But I did a talk last week, a live talk. I was sharing one of the things that have had the biggest impact on me, which is this idea of using friction each day as a way of learning something. And we can potentially talk about that later if you want. Yeah. And I said, I don't feel these big highs and lows anymore. And I perhaps didn't make it as clear as I could have done because he left a message for me to say, what... I wonder, does that mean that life just becomes flat and, you know, you don't get that big high anymore? Yeah, you don't get the big low, but it's just like in the middle. It's not that. The high is deeper. It's less kind of artificial and almost ego elevating high. It's actually a deep form of contentment that lasts for longer and feels much better. But also you don't go into, it's in, you still get, you still can feel good right? You can still feel really joyful and contented. But it's never that, it's almost like a sugary high. Do you know what I mean? You know, that kind of artificial, oh, everything's everything's fantastic for it. And then you just crash again. It's not that. So I feel I have, you know, and this is this wider concept of happiness. What is happiness? Well, when I say core happiness, because I think core happiness is what all humans deep down want. Core, core happiness has three elements to it, right? Alignment, contentment, and control. Alignment is basically when the person who you are inside, like the person who really is you and the person who you are being out there in the world are one and the same. So basically when your inner values and your external actions start to match up, that's when you are living in alignment, that's one of the legs that you can work on on this in this sort of idea of core happiness. The second leg is contentment. What are the things that you do in your life that make you feel calm, content? What are the things that give you a sense of peace with your life and your decisions? That's that second element, contentment. And the third leg of this stool is control. I thought long and hard, Andy, about using the word control because... Um, I think control is also, like happiness, a word that can be easily misinterpreted. And this is not about controlling the world, because the world is inherently uncontrollable. We're seeing that at the moment, right? We've seen that over the last two years. Things are going to happen whether you want them to or not. Sure. This is about what things can you do regularly that give you a sense of control over the world, even though you're not actually controlling things. And I really think that this is a very complete model. I, I think we can all apply that core happiness model on these three components to every aspect of our life and figure out why certain things truly nourish our happiness and other things actually take us away from our happiness. And 
I spent a lot of time trying to come out and, and kind of put all the pieces together because I wanted people to have a practical tool that they could put in their back pocket and take around with them in their life and go, oh, I get it. When I do this, I feel more aligned. That's why I always sleep better afterwards and I feel good and my relationships are better because, oh, I see why. Oh, I get it. When I do that at work or, you know, let's say you you value um, honesty. That's what you really deeply value. You value being honest and being being kind to other people. And then at work, let's say someone's been a bit dishonest to get a promotion or to kind of, you know, reduce how much someone else did to try and take the credit for something. Sure, in the moment, they might impress their boss. They might get a raise or whatever, get the plaudits. But you can't hide from yourself. When you're lying in bed at night, you know what you've done. Yeah. Right? You're not aligned with who you truly are. You've kind of been a bit dishonest to get ahead. That will start to weaken your core happiness bit by bit, week after week. That's why, you know, you you need to go on a binge one weekend, whether it's with sugar or booze or something. You need to compensate for that discomfort you feel because you're not living in a way that you truly want to. And actually, these these concepts sound quite deep. They can be very deep, but they're also very simple and practical. Do you know what I mean? That's what I'm, I'm really keen to sort of say that, you know, you can use this in every aspect of your life with with everything, really. Yes. I mean, since reading the book and becoming familiar with the terminology and the stool that you repeatedly come back to and the three legs of it, I have found myself almost naturally when I've been having a thought or in a conversation or speaking to my team or whatever it might be, I have found myself going, oh, this one is alignment and this one is control because I'm I'm now feeling okay because I've you know, if I'm out of control with something, yeah. I can shift this. If I can make this little change, then I feel okay with it, whatever happens, because I've done my bit in terms of the uh, control. And what, what I love about that, and that's so gratifying to hear, because this is the problem with the term happiness. It just feels like this kind of, it's like a mirage. One day I might be happy when everything sort of, sort of lines up for me and people start treating me a certain way. The world around me is a certain way. Yeah, I'm going to be happy then. And what I think you've just beautifully demonstrated there is that when you understand happiness, what the key components are, you go, oh, I get it. It just it just puts words and actions to this kind of thing that we all deep down want, but we don't know how to get. Yeah. Hello, I'm Amber. I work for the team that bring you this show and the Driven Chat podcast. And we love that you're listening. It would be really cool if you could just chuck us five stars, subscribe and tell your friends. Thank you. Podcast. Yes, absolutely. And it's also that elimination of those those two key phrases, I'll be happy when and I'll be happy if. Because actually, if you're going to wait for something or if this circumstance has to happen or whatever, then you're just going to be endlessly chasing something. Yeah. And, uh, you know. and look, you know, real practical example, I show up, you know, for this interview with you, which I'm really excited we're doing. And you ask me, you know, are you happy? Well, one of the reasons I can honestly answer and say, yeah, I really am. In a way that I don't think I, like I think the wrong enough even five years ago. I don't know what I would have said, but yeah, I probably would have been nervous, you know, a little bit anxious. You know, I hope the interview goes well, you know, I hope I can answer the questions properly or, you know, whatever story I might have put into my head about it. So how I'm going to feel is dependent on how the next half an hour, the next hour goes with Andy. Whereas now, 
it's not it's not relevant to how I feel. Like I know I'm going to do a good job because ultimately all I need to do is be me in the moment and respond honestly and authentically. If it connects, unbelievable, great. If it doesn't, oh well, for whatever reason, the energy on that day. Yeah didn't play out. It, it sounds like I've become a passive participant in life. I, I promise you I haven't. I'm still, you know, I still get a lot of things done, right? I, you know, I, I write a book a year. I put a podcast out a week. I see patients. I teach doctors. You know, I, I it's not, I'm not passively just saving through life, not having a desire to do stuff. It's you know, I hope I'm making sense, Andy. Yes, I, I just, you are. It's you different. are. You're, you're not bogged down in the trivia of it. I mean, I could share something with you. I, I have many pages of notes here. I mean, I've made so many notes, it's ridiculous. I haven't referred to them once since we've been talking because I've been focused exclusively on what you're saying. And and it's interesting. I guess that's my my being present in the conversation. Usually I would probably be thinking three or four questions ahead. And if you brought something up, I'd be going, oh yes. And that was the time when you did this, that or the other, you know, but I haven't done that on on any level. All I've been doing is focusing on what you're saying. And I think- And then, you know, when we do that, that's, that's what living a happy life ultimately is. It's being present in every moment, right? It's very, it can seem very hard to do. Um, I've struggled with it for most of my life, but the- the more we can do that, and we it's just something we can practice and get better at. You know, this conversation, I think, is a prime example of that, where we, it's just really enjoyable. We're in the moment, you know, I'm responding to you, you're responding to me. I was asked on um, a podcast recently, you know, how do you, how do you see the term high performance? And if I was asked that question about 10 years ago, it would have very much been through the lens of, work success that I would have answered it you know high performance at work or in athletic endeavors or yeah. you know achievement That's winning an performance, Oscar right yeah win an Oscar yeah get a BAFTA whatever Grammy. whatever it might be yeah. run it running a faster 5k or whatever right is what I would have considered high performance to be but at this stage in my life that's not what I consider high performance to be because I know what it's like to be crushing it at work and doing really well and then sitting over dinner with your wife and kids and just not being there you're literally still in your head in your email inbox all the things that you have to do and you're you're trying to enjoy this gorgeous moment where you're sitting down with your family and lucky to have a family who love me and I love them but you're not there yeah. so I think going back to what we were talking about before about you know let's say Johnny Wilkinson or or myself or people who are, who are focused on the outcome we often miss life and and it's it's those little moments those day-to-day moments in life that actually truly make us happy so for me these days high performance is and I'm not perfect and this is something I you know I'm trying to get better at and I, and I am much better at than I was and hopefully if we have a conversation in a few years time I'll be like yeah I'm even better now than I was but it's can I be fully engaged and present in every moment when I'm at work can I be engaged and present with my work but also you know when I'm sat for dinner with my wife and children, can I be fully engaged and present and listen and be, do you know what I mean? For me, that's the sort of high performance I'm looking at in my life now, because otherwise, yeah, you have high performance at work, but I kind of feel we all want high performance as a partner as well. And as a parent and as a friend and as a son or a daughter, right? Why can't we have high performance in those aspects of our lives, we absolutely can, but we've got to just broaden out that definition 
of what high performance means. Yes, being the best version of yourself doesn't just mean being the best version of yourself at work. It's as a dad, as yeah. a partner, as a brother, as a son, and so on. Yeah, uh, and and Andy, going back to success v happiness, which I think is one of the big myths, we have to try and help people understand that they're not the same thing for most of us. They can, you know, some people sure they get it, but often we work so hard, we chase these dreams that we think are going to make us happy, and the cost of doing that is that we neglect the most important things in our life. You know, there will be people listening to this right now, Andy, who will be reflecting going, yeah, that's probably me. Yeah, I'm probably doing that. That's okay. Don't feel bad. Right? It's never too late to change. And that's why I think this um, core happiness store, the three components are so important because I don't know if you've seen this a lot on social media over the last few years. I certainly have that it's not about meaning or purpose. Sorry, that we shouldn't be chasing happiness. We should be chasing meaning. Okay. I don't know if you've heard that before. I've certainly seen it on my feed quite a lot. They're saying that happiness is the wrong goal. It's actually all about meaning. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. I think meaning is important, but how does that play into happiness? And then I looked at it through the lens of my core happiness stool. And I thought, well, if this is a complete model, Rongan, then you should be able to answer it through this lens. Otherwise, okay. it's not. And I need to do better and actually come up with a, with a model that does hold true. And it comes down to alignment because... Meaning, I think it's an important ingredient for happiness, but it's not happiness in and of itself. So a simple example, you could love your job and it could give you a deep sense of meaning and purpose. And you could love the business you run or the job you're in and what that does for the world around you. Great. So you might have that alignment leg of the stool nailed in terms of your work. But then you could be working so hard, even though you've got meaning and purpose, that you never spend any time with your partner or your children. So it's on one hand, yes, you've got that meaning and purpose. But on the other hand, you're neglecting some really, really important relationships that we know are fundamental to how we feel about ourselves. You know, relationships are, without question from the research, the number one factor in how happy you're going to be in your life nothing comes close to to relationships, good quality relationships. So I think it's just really interesting to think about these things and go, it's, we, we need to look at it in a rounded way, alignment, contentment, and control. Um, and also meaning, I think is, you know, what is meaning? Well, something that gives you a sense of meaning or purpose is kind of when you're living in alignment with your values. It's alignments, right? Let's say you love your job, right? And it gives you a deep sense of pleasure and meaning. Well, I would argue that's because you're aligned. In that moment, the person who you are wanting to be and the person you are actually being are one and the same. You know, your values and your actions are starting to match up. I think that is a life of meaning. So I just, I, I, I like reflecting on this stuff. I, I hope people can see themselves in these stories because it, it's really not that difficult, I don't think, once you understand it. I f- what I find really, really fascinating talking to you about this as well, Rongan, is that you and I, we are virtually the same age. We're both 1977, you're August, I'm September. So we, we couldn't be much closer in terms of the time we entered this crazy planet. And you've been saying a few times now, you know, five years ago, you would have had a very different experience of this. And, and, and you probably couldn't have written this book even three years ago. Something has changed in you. There's been a temperature change in the way you've seen the world. 
And it's funny, I've always imagined from Little, and, and we'll talk about, I do want to talk about Little Rongan, because I think, you know, you've had some fascinating lessons that, that are now apparent as to why. You know, we often kind of realise why something happened to us after the fact. And we'll mm. come back to that if that's okay. But I've always kind of imagined being 44, 45 as being really old. You know what I mean? The, the little me has thought of those ages, thought, God, they, you're an old man at that stage, right? You're, you're decades into a career. You've got a mortgage. You've got kids. But also, and this is something that people kept telling me when I was growing up, yeah, but you've got wisdom. You know, when you're older, you've, got, you've, you've lived a bit. And you've probably only been able to get to this point because for this very reason, you've lived a bit now. You know what I mean? You've had some highs, you've had some lows, you've been through some huge challenges with your father, of course, and, 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 and those 15 years by his bedside, with your own son when he was six months old, which I'd like to discuss as well, if you're cool with that. You've had some experiences which have been real explosions in your life that have forced you to reset and reframe. And these aren't things that you can do at 20 years old, and they're not things you can do at 30. But in this sweet spot we're in right now of this kind of not quite mid-40s, but almost there, You've had enough life experience, enough life baggage to be able to unpack it properly and go, ah, so so doing this equals that, and that means that, and yeah. these things all kind of fit together. The jigsaw starts to make more sense, doesn't it? I think you're right. I think you do need a certain level of life experience or to chase the wrong things for a while to realize that, oh, that doesn't kind of make you happy. That doesn't leave a sense of joy and contentment inside I think you're definitely right there. I do think about this a lot because like you, I've got, you know, I've got young kids and I think about this idea that, well, it's kind of adversity in life that's kind of forged who I am and I've learned the big lessons in life through that adversity. But as a parent, of course, you don't really want your kids to go through adversity, even though part of you knows that that's the only way you ever learn these kind of really important lessons or that's one of the ways I I should say so I think age has something to do with it but I don't think it's the only thing and the reason why I don't think it's the only thing is I, I talk a lot about one of the most powerful conversations I've ever had on my podcast and that's with a lady called Dr Edith Eager right right yes. so Edith Eager I don't know if you heard this conversation about yes. a year and a half ago. It was remarkable, Un- unbelievable, lady. My goodness, I, I I was not the same person after that conversation as I was before it. I actually I had that conversation remotely in this room as I'm talking to you now. I was I remember coming in, having it, leaving the studio, going. I just I my whole perspective on life had changed. And what why was that? Well, when I spoke to Edith, she was 93 years old. When she was 16, right, she was growing up in Eastern Europe. And I think that night she had a date with her boyfriend. So she was quite excited and she was trying to think what dress is she going to wear. And they got a knock on the door and her parents, her and her sister got put on a train to Auschwitz concentration camp. Within two hours of getting there, both her parents are murdered. And one of the first things she has to do is she gets asked to dance for some of the senior prison guards. Yeah. And one of the things she said to me was, Rongan, I, I, I never forget the very last thing my mum said to me, which was, Edith, never ever forget, nobody can take from you the contents that you put inside your mind. And so she said to me, when I was dancing, 
I wasn't dancing in Auschwitz. In my mind, I was dancing in Budapest Opera House. There was a full orchestra playing. There was a full house in front of me. I had this beautiful dress on. And I thought, okay, that is pretty incredible that you can, you know, paint a different picture in your mind whilst you're in Auschwitz and your parents have just been murdered. So that was one of the first things she said to me that I still think about to this day. Then she said to me while she was in Auschwitz, she said, I started to see the prison guards as the prisoners. They were the ones who weren't free. They were the ones who weren't living their life, their true life. In my mind, I was free. And I thought, well, that is pretty incredible. But then she summed it all up at the end of our conversation when she said, Rongan, I have lived in Auschwitz and I can tell you the greatest prison you will ever live inside is the prison you create inside your mind. And what that conversation taught me is that you can reframe any situation in life, right? If if Edith can reframe yeah. uh, situations in Auschwitz, well, most of us, given the sort of things we stress about and allow ourselves to get stressed about in our day-to-day life, I think, well you know what, I can probably reframe this. And learning to reframe situations is probably the thing that's had the most impact on my own health and happiness that, than anything else. I really do think that. And, and you know, we mentioned social friction before. What I do on a daily basis is whenever I encounter a bit of social friction, so an email from someone that I don't like or someone behaving in a way that I may not like, I take a pause and I reframe it. I choose what I call the happiness story. I, I the, the phrase that really helps me is this phrase, if I were them, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. And, and that phrase, if you really think about it, what does it mean? It means that if I was that person with their childhood, with the bullying they had at school, with their parents, with the toxic boss they had when they were 17 and their first job, whatever, the, the, the whole totality of their life experience. If I had had what they had, I'd have the same view of the world and I'd probably act in the same way as them. It's just a very, what it leads to is a real compassionate place. You approach every interaction with compassion. It doesn't mean you agree with everything. It doesn't mean you like everything, but it takes the emotional sting out of the situation and it allows you to make better decisions. So I learned to, I've, I've been doing this for so long now that it's almost become automatic where I don't have to think about it. I I catch myself all the time and go, ah, don't play that victim narrative in your mind. Choose an empowering story. Um, And and it really does help it. You know, that email, let's say that someone's boss sends them that they don't like. I don't like the tone. I can't believe my boss speaks to me like that. Does my boss not know that I worked last weekend? Does my boss not know that I've done this job? I know how to do it. I don't need to be told that. Hey, this is just all noise. This is a self-created story in our minds. It may be true. When you react like that, you're creating emotional stress. That emotional stress leads to physical health problems. That emotional stress needs you to engage in a junk happiness habit to relieve it, whether that be sugar, ice cream, alcohol, gambling, Instagram. You will need to relieve that in some way. Whereas if you if you learn to go, ah, oh, what story can I present here? oh, well, maybe my boss's boss has put them under pressure and they're taking it out on me. Maybe my boss's child had earache last night and they've hardly slept and they're just a bit ratty today. Oh, I get it. You know, I can get like that when my child hasn't slept and I've been up. 
what I've learned, Andy, this is one of my key learnings in, I was going to say over the last few years, but arguably in my entire life, is that for our happiness, the truth doesn't matter. Right. Right? For, for, to be happy, the truth doesn't matter. It, the, what Your perspective on that situation is what determines your reaction to it. And let's just just just, just go one step further on that. So, because that might be quite provocative and controversial to some people. So let me just try and um, lay that out a bit. Imagine a married couple or two partners in a romantic relationship having a disagreement or an argument. I'm sure nobody listening has ever been in that situation before, but let's let's just hypothesize that they have been, right? What really happened, right? What what happened in that disagreement or that argument? Well, it kind of depends who you ask, right? If you ask one party, they'll give you one version of events, walk around to the other side of the table, ask the other party what happens, they'll give you a completely different story off the same event, yeah. right? Psych- psychologists did the same study, well, a similar study with football fans. They took two sets of football fans and they showed them the same incident, right? Same thing that happened and asked them what happened. They've got two completely different perspectives and two realities of the same situation, right? So when I say the truth doesn't matter, for your happiness, what I mean is you can take a disempowering, what I call a victim narrative. And I say that with compassion. I've done that for much of my life. I certainly learned to do that from my family who I think would do that as well, right? So I'm not beating them up. I'm not beating myself up, but I learned to do that. Oh, I can't believe that happened to me. Oh, I can't believe they did that. Man, I, you know, they should know. Whatever, whatever story, which basically, what it basically does is say, I'm going to let the actions of other people influence my inner well-being, right? I will only be happy and content when people around me act in a certain way. Now, that's a very vulnerable place to be because you are really dependent on things well outside your control in order for you to be happy. And I know this is pretty deep, Andy, but yeah, it is deep. But it's important. And it's not that hard. All you have to do is practice. We know the idea that if you lift that weight every day in the gym, you're going to get stronger. You practice reframing every day. So I say to people, I work out on the social gym every day, right? Every day is a school day. Whenever I get a bit of social friction, boom, I've got a learning opportunity. I can practice reframing it. You do that regularly enough and for a long enough period of time, you will literally feel like a different person. Your shoulders will drop. You, it, people say to you, yeah, but then that makes, it makes it okay for people to pay in a certain way. No, it doesn't. But what it does, another way which might be helpful for people to think about it, if you get emotionally triggered and reactive to the actions of others, you don't make good decisions, right? We've got, you can think of your brain in two parts, right? Your rational brain, which is at the front, what we call the prefrontal cortex, and the emotional brain, right? This is, this is a, gross oversimplification of the brain but in terms of making this point I think it really works when you're feeling calm and relaxed that front part of your brain the rational brain we can make good decisions we can assess things logically and rationally we can make good quality decisions but when we're getting triggered and we feel emotional so we feel scared or anxious or we're really really annoyed you switch off the front part of your brain it goes offline and you are literally being uh, run by your emotional brain right? And so what I'm saying is that email from your boss, you may not like it. You may want to take action on it. 
But don't disempower yourself by making yourself a victim, right? If you can reframe it, you take the emotional sting out of it. You feel better in yourself and then you can make a good quality decision. Maybe it's like you send a nice rational email and say, hey, listen, can we have a meeting? Because I just got a couple of things on my mind I'd love to discuss with you. And instead of coming to it from a place of, I can't believe you sent me that email. Do you not, you know, that never, you know, when it, we all know in our own relationships, if you try and address something from a place of feeling triggered or frustrated or annoyed, what what happens, right? It just leads to more triggering and annoyance and anger and fighting and arguing. But if you can maintain your calm, so I don't mean to keep going on this point, but I, I guess why I'm so passionate about it, Andy, is because I honestly feel having done it myself, and I can see with clarity now how for much of my life I took on a victim narrative, which frankly didn't help me. And this is one of the big reasons why I feel so calm and content these days is because my inner well-being is really not that dependent anymore on the actions of other people. I can cultivate it within myself. And that is something that all of us can do. And I've outlined in the book really simple ways on how people can do this. You have. It's it's a very powerful tool. And actually, it's very interesting to hear you speak so passionately about it, because I have my own little version of it that I actioned just the other day based on reading the book. And, I, you know, I don't usually share great personal stories on this show because it's about my guests, not about me. But for the purpose of demonstrating your technique, I will give you a little insight into my world. And that is at university. I have many friends. We're all very close. We're all still buddies except for one guy who's always had an issue with me. I won't give his name out or anything like that, but he's always had a problem with me. And as a result, he has gone out of his way to try and make sure I'm excluded from certain things. And every now and again, once or twice a year, I'll find out that there's been a, a meal or a party or something where everyone's been invited except me because he's been the organiser. And every now and again, someone will step up and try and make sure I'm there and so on. But nonetheless, and it's always hurt me. I've never understood mm. it. Now, we have something coming up, big friend's birthday coming up, and I found out that once again, he's arranged a pre-meal for a bunch of my friends, and then they'll go on to the party afterwards. And with your book in mind, I thought to myself, well, hang on, here we go again. This bloke has done it again, and here I am. And then I started thinking about his perspective, and it reminded me, I was thinking, well, why? Why does he have such an issue with me? Because actually I have done my level best throughout my life to be honest, kind and decent. Those are key values for me. And I remember that actually at the very end of my university, I moved in with a good friend of mine who was dating this guy and he treated mm. her like garbage. And she asked me as the man in her life who wasn't romantically linked to her to speak to him. So I took him out for a beer and I said, this isn't on. The way you're behaving, the cheating, the, 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 the language you're using around her, the way you're making her feel, it's not on. You're being a bad human being. Stop it. It's just not cool. And he didn't react brilliantly to that. And that's that. And then I thought to myself, well, hang on a sec. Here we are 20 years later. He's, she's still going to these parties. They've, they've become friends now. But I'm the one being excluded. And actually, it's because I remind him of a time when he was an absolute jerk. And I wouldn't want to be reminded of that. So I'd probably yeah. try and keep me away as well. And now I'm just like, well, whatever. Let him exclude me. I, I'll still see my mates who are my mates. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Andy, thank you for sharing that. That's such a good real life example that I think so many people will resonate with. And I, I love the way you, you know, 
for maybe for many years being frustrated, getting annoyed. Why is it doing this? Creating never understood it. You and, never understood yeah, it. And that, yeah. that create, maybe that leads to another, you know, an extra couple of beers to unwind that or whatever, you know, might happen as a consequence of feeling that way. But this is a great start, I would say. And, you know, if you can take that emotional sting out of it, go, okay, I get it. You know, I'm reminding him of the part. The next step might be you actually give him a call at some point and say, hey, listen, you know, I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying, I'm just offering you a possibility where you say, hey, listen, um, I've noticed this happens quite a lot. And, um, you know, I get that there may be something going on at your side. You know, I, it didn't it didn't used to make me feel good, but I'm pretty okay with it now. You know, do you fancy getting together and having a little chat? Because I'm sure it'd be easier for both of us if we can sort this out. You know, I don't know. I'm not, of course, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but by not, you know, when we're locked in that thing where we feel, I can't believe it, I don't know why he's done that. You know, it's very hard to then take action that actually leads to anything. But, you know, may, maybe this will be the start of actually making the peace and moving on, where in the future you guys are mates and hanging out and doing things together. Do you know what I mean? Who knows? Like, I don't Who knows. Yeah. That's not the point, but do you know what I mean? It's kind yes. of, it changes things. Yes. But I mean, the key for me is that I now, I've stopped caring. Okay, so he's not calling me up to, to invite me to these things. Oh, I, I actually don't care now because I realise that me being there probably reminds him of it. Really and it's not about you. That, that, the yeah. other big big realisation we have when we do this is like, oh, this has probably got nothing to do with me. This is probably, your, you know, this, this friends, you know, whatever. It's probably in his own head, the way he's feeling and he's, this is how it's playing out. That it's not about you. So you don't have to feel bad about it. It's like, yeah, it can't be a nice... The other way I think about it, it can't be nice for that person to live like that, to actively try and make sure, oh, let's let's do it where Andy's not going to be there, right? How much energy yes. is he expending to consistently do that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That can't be a nice place to be for him. Yeah. Well, it's anyway, so I, you know, I, anyway. I, move, I move forward with love. We've, we've talked far too much about me though, Rong, and you know, this is, this is a conversation about you. No, and I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed hearing that. I really did. Oh, good. Well, uh, yeah, that's, that's more sharing than I've done on this show for, for about a hundred episodes. So <laughs> there, there, there we go. Uh, let, let's talk about, so I'd like to, I've referenced Little Rong in a couple of times now. You've talked about this 99% wasn't good enough, but at the same time, you've also talked about when you were younger, watching your dad come home have his dinner, have a shave and, and then go out and do an all-nighter, come back, go straight back to work, only sleeping three nights a week. At the same time, you're hearing the messages from your mum and dad, 99% isn't good enough. And as you've alluded to, success for you as a child was become a doctor, become a lawyer. I'm supposing an accountant's probably in there as a success definition as well. Apologies if I'm wrong. But you're striving to be a doctor, just like your dad, who you're watching exhaust himself week in, week out. So I guess I have two questions for you, which is firstly, when you were growing up, I appreciate as a grown man, things changed in your relationship. But when you were growing up, how was your relationship with your dad? Because it, your contact time with him must have been quite limited, which is, which is a huge shame. And, and secondly, now that you've had so much reflection time, how do you think that was shaping you? These, these sort of mixed messages of get 100% and you can be almost as good as dad, who exhausts himself constantly. He lives yeah. a life of extreme fatigue. You know, in the moment, you don't think anything because that's your life. I mean, you know, <laughs> our childhoods, we don't know that people have different childhoods or different experiences because 
that's your world. That's what you consider to be normal. So that was just my life. You know, dad works and, you know, dad would, you know, it's not that I never saw him, you know, dad would make an effort to play a bit of table tennis, you know, whenever he was around or a bit of snooker on a little snooker table we had, you know. Um, but yeah, he wasn't there a lot. And so, you know, my brother and I spent a lot of time with mum and, you know, probably were very close to mum because of that. Not, I'm not saying that's the only reason, but, you know, dad wasn't around. So we would have spent a lot of time with mum, basically. I don't think I realised much growing up. I think, you know, the other, the other thing I've realised over the past few years is that what we get exposed to as a child massively influences what we think is possible in the world. All mum and dad's friends, you know, at least one of the parents was a doctor and at least one of the kids was going to medical school. It was just the norm. So all I saw around me was other doctors and kids going to be doctors. So actually getting into medical school for me was honestly no big deal. I don't (laughs) say that to sound blasé, honestly. Like, and and I, I appreciate that for many people, that's like a massive, massive moment. I'd be lying if I said it was for me. It was just the norm of what I was almost expected to do and what I expected of myself because of what I saw around me. It doesn't mean I'm not proud to be a doctor. It doesn't mean I don't dearly love what I do, especially for the last 10 years of my career, what I do. But it, it just it just forges your reality and then what you think is possible. As I reflect, you know, and really my reflection started in a big way when dad died. So dad died just over nine years ago. Of course, like for many people, when one of their parents dies, it's a big moment for sure. But there was also like, yes, an emotional hole in my life, but there was also a physical hole because I'd moved back to live, you know, five minutes away from mum and dad. I would see dad usually three times a day, you know, super early to help get him ready in the morning, lunch, dinner, whatever. So it wasn't just this emotional hole, like literally in my, in in the kind of rhythm of my day-to-day life, all this time where I would have been seeing dad and helping him, I just had all this space. And I remember, this is in 2013, I'd just go for lots of walks. I'd just walk and think. And, you know, I ended up asking myself all these big existential questions that until that point, I'd never thought about. And frankly, I was too busy. Anyone who's listening, who's a carer knows what it can be like. You you don't have time to do anything because your whole life is just about this needs doing, oh, that needs doing, who's going to do that, who's going to do that. And it was in that reflection time that I'd been on this kind of journey. Instead of looking out there for answers, I started to kind of turn the ship around and start going inwards to look for answers. And that's led me on this journey to figure out why do certain things trigger me? Why do I think the way I do about the world? Of course, my parents and the way they were hugely influenced me like they do for pretty much all kids. And it's only in the last few years, I would say, as I really have gone deeper that I understand, oh, of course. So I did take my sense of who I was from the world around me and from my grades and from, you know, these external metrics of success. And of course, I was witnessing my dad you know, be the breadwinner for the family and work himself to death. Yeah. And I think I have had tendencies earlier on in my career 
to also overwork. Right. And then actually, it's interesting. You you look back now, you go, wow, well, why wouldn't I have if that's all I saw and that's what I absorbed? But I'm very aware of it. So again, can I just, on perspective, I think it's important to say, I think my dad did what he felt he had to do. You know, I don't know what it's like to leave my parents, my family, my friends, go to a country 3,000 miles away with nothing, with no community, with no network, and to build a life from scratch. Well, I don't know what that feels like. So I'm not saying dad made the wrong choice at all, right? Dad made the choice that he felt he had to make. What I can do is learn from that and learn from his life and go, well, that's interesting. I certainly do not need to make the same choices that my dad and mum had to make because I'm not an immigrant to the UK. I'm born and bred in Manchester. I've lived here my entire life. I've got opportunities that my parents never had. Yes. Do you know what I mean? So it's not about saying dad was wrong. Yes, he killed himself working, but it doesn't mean he was wrong to do so. And that's, again, I feel, again, I, I mentioned that word perspective a lot because I think perspective is everything. As Edith Eager taught me in Auschwitz, perspective can determine your experience of anything in life. You know, um, there's a phrase that there's, you know, you gotta be careful with this phrase because it results in a lot of people getting triggered. But I think Shakespeare, I think it's Shakespeare who said, there's no good or bad, only thinking makes it so. Yes. This is nothing either, either good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. Yeah. Yeah. So, Thank you for, for for properly outlining the phrase that I was sort of trying to summarize. Um, but essentially, and I know some people will immediately go, well, hold on, this is a really awful situation that is bad. And I, I you know, I understand that, right? I'm not trying to, like, what, what, is, what is the essence of what he is trying to say with that quote? Because I think a lot of the time these days, we, we've got to a point where everything's black and white. I've, I've learned that very few things hold true in every single situation. Like, Nothing really, if you take it to the extremes, is always true, or very few things are always, always true. But what is the intention behind that? My interpretation is it's all about perspective. Like events are neutral, it's the spin we put on that event that determines whether it's actually stress inducing or happiness inducing. And this comes back and, to control, Rongun. You know, you, yeah. can, you can control your reaction. So, one of the few things you, you can do is you can choose how you're going to react. Yeah, and, and when when you are in a position where you, that's a foreign concept, as it would have been for me, certainly 10 years ago, I want to share with you that actually, this is a trainable skill, just like anything else. The reason you're good at brushing your teeth now, at whatever age you're, you're, you're at, is because you've been practicing for two or four minutes a day, since you were maybe three years old right? So you, you're pretty good at the skill. You know how to brush your teeth. I'm and standing at it. I'm really good. You, I'm really well, good. There you go. I can tell. I can tell. You know, <laughs> I look, is, that, is that a medal in the background? Sort of like a <laughs> toothbrushing medal? You know, I, but it, w- you practice it, you get good at it. It becomes a habit. And from someone who used to be very reactive, I really was. Like the actions of other people, I would have a visceral response straight away that would annoy me or a driver who would cut you off on the road. You'd get quite irate inside. I can't believe, you know, they're driving like that or whatever story you want to tell yourself. I can tell you, I don't have those reactions anymore. Like it wasn't just a switch overnight. It was you get a bit better. Then you realize, oh, you're reacting again. Ah, oh, cool. 
you know, ah, I, I don't have to react like that. I can choose a different story. And and over over time, what happens is that space between the stimulus and your response, that space becomes bigger and bigger. Now, it's probably only a few milliseconds, but my perception of that space is I feel a lot of the time, I've got all the time in the world now to choose my response to this. And it's with that choice that determines the outcome for me in my life. And, you know, Viktor Frankl, you know, Viktor Frankl, um, this psychotherapist, psychiatrist, who also was in a concentration camp and has written a brilliant book called A Man's Search for Meaning. Again, he has a phrase which I don't want to butcher, and hopefully you can correct me if I get it wrong, but essentially it's between stimulus and response is a space. And it's something like that in that space is our power to choose our response, and with that response comes our freedom. Right. And again, this is someone else who managed to get through Auschwitz. Um, and of course, I appreciate there's a lot of luck in that and not everyone was fortunate. You know, I, sure. I, I want to yeah. be really respectful about that. I'm, I think those guys would also say it was that there was a huge amount of luck as well in terms of the fact that they survived. But then they've also survived and not been destroyed by it. Right. And I think that's the key for me is the mindset of what they've learned and how they applied it in there they chose a different response to the same stressor compared to many other people, right? And I, I don't think there's a more important skill to learn in life. And it's something I really try and do with my children and help them understand this. Because when you do that, you literally find that you are framing the world in a way that helps you and that doesn't enslave you. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And 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 you mentioned adversity before, you mentioned a certain age. I just want to come back to that, Andy, because I think it's a really, really good point. I don't think I ever completed it. I mentioned Edith Eager, and she was doing that at the age of 16 or 17, mm-hmm. right? When she was a teenager. So yeah, we're in our mid-40s. Let's, let's call it early 40s, right? We're, we're <laughs> in our early 40s, yeah? Technically, early 40s. Um, and we're learning this stuff now, Right? And I'm thinking, well, some people haven't learned this and they're in their 80s and 90s. You know, I see I've got many elderly patients and I hear the voice inside their head and how they talk to themselves and how the narrative they tell themselves about life events often doesn't help them. I think, well, we're learning this now in our early 40s. Well, what if our children can learn this as teenagers? Yeah. What if do you know what I mean? Maybe it doesn't have to be that you get to midlife or a certain stage in your life. Maybe some of these tools, not all of them, but maybe some of them we can teach our kids. And I, I honestly feel, because I talk to my kids about this stuff and, you know, my son's 11, my daughter's nine. They get this stuff, mm. right? They truly get it. doesn't mean it's easy to apply the whole time. But like a few weeks ago, someone was being bullied, I think, at, uh, well, my daughter heard about someone who was being bullied. It wasn't involving her, right? And I understand bullying is really toxic. It causes lots of problems for kids, their parents. There's a lot of emotions running high. I understand that. Of course, we should be doing everything we can to stop bullying. But I wasn't directly involved with the situation or with my kids. But what I said to her is, hey, how do you think that bully feels inside? Do you think that bully is a happy person? She goes, no, daddy, I don't think so. They must be really unhappy to behave like that. And I thought, isn't that a 
I, I hope, like like all parents, I'm trying to do the best that I can. And I hope it plays out in the end that it's, it, it has helped them. But I think, well, for a nine-year-old girl to really understand that that person acting in that way, they can't be happy and content. They must be a discontentment, an insecurity, something going on in their life that they're taking out on someone else. It doesn't make the bullying right. But it also helps her understand that there's always a different story. There's always a different perspective to take. Do you know what I mean? Did that did yeah. that make sense, Andy? Yes, it did. And it's and it's a remarkable reaction for a, a nine-year-old to have. You know, and it's 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 extremely encouraging that, that that she's able to think like that. Of course, you know, her dad is telling her all the right things. And you just you just gotta hope that that's being mirrored in schools and other houses around around the country. Yeah, I, yeah, I as I say, I, I genuinely believe that every parent is doing the best they can based upon their life and what they're able to provide, what they're able to do based upon their experiences. I really do. I'm no different. Like I'm just sharing the things with them that I feel are important. And on some level, I wish I'd learned when I was a kid. And will this stick? I don't know, but we talk about this stuff over dinner. Like genuinely, like, and they're fun conversations. They're not like lectures. They're like, hey, you know, how might we look at this situation? And this is... I find it useful because I also find sometimes they have a brilliant perspective that I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Like, I honestly feel that we can learn so much from our kids, like before they get conditioned by society and school, they kind of they kind of know what happiness is, what deep presence, mindfulness and happiness is. It, it just somehow, at some point, it kind of almost gets schooled or sucked out of them by society do you know what i mean Andy? yes Have i you do that with your yes, kids yes uh, yes i do because I, I i i do the night shift with my boys every night uh you know which means i just incessantly check on the three of them and make sure they're breathing and they're happy and they're healthy and i have noticed that, that each one of them at different times not every night but you know at least once a month one of them laughs in their sleep and i think to myself wow I, oh, I'd love to be laughing in my sleep again. That would just be, oh. you know, <laughs> wouldn't that be amazing? Maybe you do and you don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, apparently I just snore. But, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Snoring or laughing, what's the difference? You know, maybe maybe it's a maybe it's a laugh that sounds like a snore. <laughs> it's just been it's just been covered. Uh, Rongan, I've been I've been wanting to ask you this from the beginning, but I I have avoided it for for reasons that I I don't want to make it too light. I mean, we've had such a deep chat and, and, and gosh, thank you so much for being so kind of intense and, and, and so smart and joyful and, and sharing such incredible things with us. But, but there's a slightly lighthearted finish and it's almost my gift to you if you haven't been aware of this. Are you familiar with Ken Dodd? vaguely but not hugely well in that case this will be a gift and i sincerely hope that you do seek this out so ken dodd is is a was a comedian he's no longer with us and he was a comedian that was through the generations he was known for various different physical comedy gags and he had a tickle stick that was one of his big things ken dodd's tickle stick right but ken dodd also released a single and the single is called happiness And actually, the lyrics in the song Happiness, and this is dating me badly, but the lyrics in the song Happiness resonate with everything in your book, everything you preach. And it is one of the most beautiful songs. It's something that I play to my boys on repeat. And it's almost hoping that subliminally it'll, it'll 
fill their minds wow. with the right things. And, it, you know, one of the lyrics is, when you come to measure a man's success, don't count money, count happiness. And it just kind of, it's just wonderful. I know oh. we've been quoting Shakespeare and various others and Frankel and so on. But actually, I would encourage you the next time you're doing an interview with someone to quote Ken Dodd. Oh, man. Andy, I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to download the track straight after this conversation. I really am because I love music. And I think the point you said there for me was really quite profound. These are just human truths, right? They're not like owned by anyone, right? It's by these great artists or poets or people who've been through great adversity. No, many people, as they go through life, have learned the same truths about the human experience, that actually happiness is not about money. It's about the small things. Um, you know, it's about perspective. You know, different people from different generations are coming up with the same conclusions. And I think that's really, really, that's kind of really freeing and empowering. It's like, you know, yes, I try to articulate it in the best way that I can in this book. Great. But I don't own these ideas, right? That, that These are universal human ideas that have been written about in many different ways by many different people based on their experiences of the world. And I think the more people who are trying to promote this kind of messaging, different people are going to resonate with different people's messaging. So I love that, you know, that on one hand, we're talking about Shakespeare and we're talking about Ken Dodd with the other hand. And I think, why not? You know, no human is more important than anyone else. We've all got wisdom to share with people that we can learn from. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I'm definitely, definitely going to download that tonight. I think, you know, whatever you think of the music, because uh, it is an older song now, but it is, it's still wonderful. It's got a horn section and it's got a full band going with it. But whatever you think of the tune, I think the words will really land with you in particular. Yeah. Let me know what you think, because I'd love to know. I will do. I will do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to play it with the kids tonight over dinner. I can't wait. 19 pages of notes I've got wrong. And the only thing I've shared with you is Happiness by Ken Dodd. <laughs> It's the most important one. It's the most important one. <laughs> it is, as it happens. Yes, it is. It's a special thing. I hope you'll love it. I really do. I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for your company. Oh, Andy, thanks for inviting me on the show. And uh, yeah, I hope we get to meet in person at some point in the future. Me too. I, I, let's make it happen. That would be wonderful. Um, good luck with the book. It is a triumph. And I suspect it is going to be top of the charts for a long, long time to come. Thank you. Appreciate it. J Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.